0: Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 1545 in Korea's Taebaek Mountains. You were last to the meeting point, so you're last in line. You're alert to every sound and each shadowy pulse of the forest as evening falls over this wild land. Amur tigers rarely attack human groups, but the last in the line is always most vulnerable. So you walk quickly, crossbow heavy on your back as you scan the dense vegetation for any flash of stripes. One shot, you tell yourself. That's all you've got if it comes to it. Tigers don't give second chances, as you and your fellow Chapukapsa tiger hunters know all too well. You don't hunt for sport, or pleasure, but out of duty. The king commands it for the safety of your people under threat of death by tiger. So out here, the burden of your responsibility outweighs all your gear, armor, crossbow, and spear. Out here? You have just one chance to take down the world's biggest cat before it takes you down. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to the latest episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. We've got a fierce topic today the elite tiger hunting corps of Korea's Joseon dynasty, which ruled for five centuries beginning around the year 1400. As always, we'll talk about the job itself, but today we'll focus more than usual on the job's place within its cultural and historical contexts. The human-tiger relationship in Korea has always been rich and complex. While having posed a deadly threat to human life and limb over the centuries they roamed the Korean peninsula, tigers also symbolized everything from traditional Korean values to its people and the nation's geography itself. Once plentiful, wild tigers are believed to be extinct in Korea. As such, in our conversation today we'll touch on all the usual suspects economy, trade, and culture, but we'll do so from the unique perspective of conservation biology, or perhaps I should say, from the eye of the tiger. Sorry, couldn't resist. Dun 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 Today, my guest is Josh Powell. Josh is a conservation biologist and National Geographic explorer with special interest in large carnivore conservation. Josh is currently completing a PhD at the Zoological Society of London and University College London, where his research explores opportunities for transboundary conservation of the Amur tiger, more commonly known as the Siberian tiger in Northeast Asia. He is the founder of Rangers Without Borders, a conservation research program focused on the work of wildlife rangers. Josh is one of the presenters of the World Wildlife Fund Voices campaign, which is a digital series on global biodiversity. And for this, he has presented from Svalbard and the Russian High Arctic, the North Atlantic and Sub-Antarctic, South Georgia. He received the Scientific Exploration Society's Explorer Award for Inspiration and Scientific Trailblazing in 2019. Josh, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, there are so many exciting things that you could talk to us about in your work, but today we're going to be focused on Korean tiger hunters in the Joseon Dynasty.
1: Yes, yes, no, indeed, a really interesting uh, period of time and a really interesting place in the world as well.
0: I'm going to speak for myself in saying it's not a part of the world that I'm as familiar with, so I'm really excited to to dive right in and learn all about this. And I would love it if you'd start us off. Uh, give us the 101. What's the historic and cultural lay of the land that that we need to know to make the most of our conversation with you today?
1: Well, well as you say, um, Karen, it's... Not a lot of people know about this period of time and and this part of the world. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: What is the period of time? That's yeah, probably so, the first so, piece so, of information.
1: <laughs> so so it, it's a, it's actually a hugely long period of time. It's between the 15th century and the 19th century that we're going to be talking about. But the Joseon dynasty actually runs almost into the 20th century. It evolves into the Korean empire, essentially. Um, And so it's uh, 500 years. Now, the British equivalent of that would be the late Plantagenets, the War of the Roses, so Lancaster and York, the Tudors, the Stuarts, the House of Hanover, really all the way through until the death of Victoria. Wow. That's amazing. Absolutely. It's this massively long-lived dynasty that we don't know much about. It's only in the West, and that's a real shame because it's an incredibly interesting place. Um, and I mean, obviously, it's sandwiched between some very large countries with uh, very vivid and iconic histories. it's It's got China on one side, Japan on the other. But Korea in this time period is is just as interesting, and particularly for what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Can you give us some sense of Korea's standing in kind of political, economic, cultural terms, what whatever you think is relevant? in respect to its larger and, you know, better known neighbors.
1: Of course. Well, I guess the first thing to say is that, and and this somewhat goes without saying, but the Korean Peninsula was not divided in two at the time. The Joseon dynasty extends throughout the Korean Peninsula and actually slightly into what we now know as Northeast China and the Russian Far East. There's certainly ethnic Koreans living there. But it's viewed very differently by the surrounding states. China tends to view uh, Korea at this point of time as a, as a vassal state. And that's quite important for what we're going to be talking about later on. But really, the, the Joseon dynasty as a, a set of kings is a really interesting point in time. Because although they're very long-lived, they've actually come about by usurping power from another almost equally long-lived dynasty, the Koryo dynasty, which again itself had extended for almost 500 years
0: wow. before
1: that. Um, so the relationship with China is going to be very important. And reflected in that, you also see a really kind of fundamental change in the belief system as this happens. So we're talking about here, the twilight of the 14th century, just before our story starts, because what you're getting is a replacement of Buddhism as a dominant belief system, being supplanted by essentially a new royal line where it's a Confucian belief system. And that's really important to our story and about the role of tiger hunters in Korea in this period, because these two different ideologies have very different emphases on the place of man in relation to the natural world. That's so incredibly important. Um, so it, it's an incredibly interesting period of time, and it is going to involve, as I say, all of these kind of major neighbors, these these large players uh, in East Asia.
0: Yeah. C- could you very quickly spell out for us what those different views of the role of humanity in the natural world was held by Buddhists versus Confucianism?
1: Well, of course. and um, Buddhism tends to... Uh, place greater emphasis uh, on the natural world as as a whole. Um, Confucianism uh, is much more anthropocentric uh, in its viewpoint. That's that it tends to put man at the centre um, of the conversation. Um, and essentially, what we're going to see is that means there's quite a significant shift in humans' relationships with tigers at this point in time. You're going from a situation in earlier periods of history where um, tigers are being treated as individual problem individuals is probably the best way to put it. Um, so the subject that you're talking about is more about individual cases of human wildlife conflict. There is tiger hunting but it's a very different thing to what you see during the Joseon dynasty and the career that we're going to be talking about today, the Chakul Kapsa who are actually a military corps, who are set up uh, ostensibly to be tiger hunters. This is moving away from kind of dealing with problem individuals towards really trying to eradicate um, death by tiger. And and we'll be talking about this a bit later on as a phenomena in rural Korea. Uh, Is it pushing for extermination of tigers? Maybe not at the start of this time period, probably so by the end of it.
0: And so the first thing that popped into my head as you were saying that is, uh, were tigers the only only problem individual species at the time, um, or were there other animals that were perceived as a threat and hunted in a a more systematic way?
1: Not at all. So what's really interesting about the purpose, and particularly for the purpose of this discussion, is that the biodiversity of the region actually is remarkably intact in this time period. From the records that we have available, we can certainly um, make the claim that this is a region of relatively intact megafauna. That means that the largest species. So it's home to the world's largest living cat, the armor tiger, obviously, but it's also home to two types of bear, both brown bears and moon bears. It's home to a leopard population. Um, the Amur leopard, which is now the world's rarest big cat, it still survives in the 21st century, although in incredibly low numbers. A wolf population. Um, there are two unique wolf populations on the neighbouring islands of Japan, of Honshu and Hokkaido. And you also have what would become the world's largest eagle, the Stellar sea eagle. But of course, tigers, and the fact that, as I say, this is the world's largest living cat, and tigers are known to Uh, Prey on livestock, they're known to prey on um, wild prey species that humans might uh, be looking to harvest, but they're also, uh, they do occasionally prey on humans, and that is a huge part of this story. I mean, there's even a word in Korean for that, it's hohan, it literally means death by tiger. Um, It's its own
0: word, wow. It's its own (laughs) word, it's
1: its own word. Um, So, so yeah, tigers are very much the central part of the story. And that's really interesting, because actually, that's this huge juxtaposition, because you have this kind of extreme fear of tigers in a way. But at the same time, tigers, and I think we'll we'll probably be able to get into this a bit later on, but tigers are playing an important cultural role for Korea. Like the tiger in many ways represents the Korean people, even the Korean peninsula. Um, So it's this interesting juxtaposition. It makes the tiger such an interesting species. For this part of the world at this point in time in history.
0: Well that, that was exactly the background that that we need to jump right in. And let's let's just try to peek over the shoulder of one of these tiger hunters in Joseon, Korea. Can you tell us what their day would have started out like and what they're thinking about?
1: Well of course. Well I, I guess probably the, the best place for me to start on that one is is to flag up the fact that this is a military regiment. So they have kind of two predominant do- roles um, and therefore their day is going to vary hugely depending on, on essentially whether they're posted on military duty or tiger hunting duty. Um, Korea it is invaded an incredible number of times um, during this extremely long lived dynasty and the chuckle capsule would have absolutely seen military action, for example, during the Imjin Wars, which is um, two large invasions uh, by Japan in the late sixteenth century. But when they're not having to fulfill military duties, when they're actually focusing on their tiger hunting role, what's really interesting about this is that um, when they're introduced and they're introduced at the start of the fifteenth century, um, they are part of the royal standing army. But it's the local magistrates who are responsible. Um, for keeping hohan's death by tiger uh, to a sustainable level—that um, is a level that the population uh, is is happy to accept, I guess is the way to put it. Um, so, although they're ostensibly based in Seoul, the Chakukapsan, there's the Chakawin who work in the surrounding areas essentially it's down to whether the magistrates in the provinces are petitioning the king and petitioning the royal court to send the chuckle out into these provinces um, in order uh, to hunt tigers. Um, And there's certainly plenty of records of them doing so. And where we're getting a lot of this information really is two quite remarkable pieces of record keeping. It's worth saying this because it's hard to tell with some of this information as to how how we're ascertaining it um and those two kind of main records are uh, the jolson wang Shilok. it's essentially the book of kings Uh, it's a record on every king's death and so it tells us a bit of information about for example when the chapel caps are formed how they grow in numbers a little bit about their operation but it's very much kind of the broad brush strokes within the context of what the King has done in his reign. And then you've got a second really useful record, which is the, um, it's the journal of the Royal Secretariat and it's a daily record. And that gives us a lot more detail about individual instances, um, what's happening essentially on the ground.
0: Who maintains that daily record, the journal, the second source that you mentioned?
1: So it's all done in the Royal Court. And um, the capital of the country is Seoul at the time, or uh, what is now modern day Seoul. Um, and so essentially it's this kind of remarkable piece of record keeping from uh, essentially a quite highly developed civil service. And I think that's what the chapel caps are in many ways, because it's part of the Royal Army. They are employed essentially as junior ranking civil servants would be the probably the best way to put it, albeit, military ones, not maybe in the context we might think of in the 21st century.
0: And this sounds like there's sort of an interesting um, chain of command, essentially, where they're a central body attached to the royal power. But as I think I understand it, please correct me if I am I misstating what you said, but that the local magistrates could call on this elite force to come and help them when the tiger situation was getting untenable in their area.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's completely spot on. Um, I mean, it's not the only method that the local magistrates would have available. Um, They could set uh, bounties individually within their local area, but um, calling on the chuckle cancer would, would would be a much more efficient way. And um, certainly from what we can tell, uh, some of uh, the records are, suggest that these issues are, are pretty strong. Um, I mean, there's, there's one record um, that I've, I've just pulled out here just because it's really interesting and it's writing the 5th of June, 1754. And it suggests that Horhan is widespread across the provinces. Tigers are entering towns and villages even before sunset. Everyone keeps their doors closed and tries not to make any noise. And the magistrates are petitioning the king to order the urgent hunting Tigers, um, and that's where the chakulcaptor come in. That's where the magistrates are petitioning the royal court, and the royal court will send out the chakulcaptor to fulfill this role.
0: The amount of artwork, folk art, and folklore stories that incorporate tigers in Korean culture is really striking, too. It's like this crazy boogeyman that they they put together. You know, these elite forces to manage, and yet. There seems to be such um, uh, a consistent pride in these creatures at the same time. It, it really must have been a really um, powerful element of society.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's something that that is even reflected in uh, Korean, uh, fairy, essentially fairy tales or folk tales, as you say. Um, the expression in Korean, where in English we use once upon a time, um in korean it's when tigers used to smoke
0: no um, wait, wait, when tigers used to smoke
1: to smoke yeah it's really interesting oh, unpack why that that's for the, us what yeah. does
0: that mean <laughs> it's,
1: it's not it's not entirely clear i mean obviously uh, historians have looked into this a lot essentially the thought is it's to do with when tobacco was first introduced to korea and um you essentially uh, had members of the nobility who would smoke with these very very long pipes um, and it's this idea of something being a, a very long time ago. Um, it's, it's really interesting how prominent uh, tigers do feature as you say um, and, and therefore as we say it's this really interesting sort of juxtaposition because there, there is this extreme fear but there's also this kind of profound respect for the tiger as well.
0: Yeah, well, and it also, it's sort of a, it's a real anthropomorphic image, the idea of a tiger smoking, (laughs) you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Well, very, very curious. All right, that, the anthropologist to me obviously is very piqued by that one, but let's move back to the daily life of some of (laughs) our chapu kapsa in this absolutely fascinating endeavor they were undertaking.
1: We don't know a huge amount at the moment about how that would have Played out necessarily. Like we're aware from later period tiger hunters in Korea when you've got um Western missionaries uh, who are writing about their activity that they're pursuing the tigers uh, and their quarry um, across the mountains of Korea. Now, Korea is an incredibly mountainous landscape. The vast majority um, of the country would have been covered in mountains at the time. What we do know maybe a little bit more about is the sort of men that are. Functioning as capsa and the equipment that they're using. Um, and they're using a, a particularly heavy crossbow and a heavier bow because of what their role is. Um, it's got to be designed to uh, essentially be able to kill a tiger um, with, with one hit. Um, and that is kind of really heavily feeds through into the sort of men that are being selected to be capsa and um, as you can imagine, a requirement to be very strong is one of the first things that's on um, your list of qualifications. The second, obviously, is that you're going out to hunt a tiger and that if the tiger hunt goes badly, um, well, then that might be your life uh, gone. Bravery is obviously highly valued. And so it's those two requirements that we're certainly aware that those are being very heavily valued uh, within the chapel council.
0: Heavy crossbow, obviously it would give the firepower to hopefully take one of these giant cats down, but also have I mean at a distance, right? I mean, I w- was there any um, backup if it did not have its intended result with the first shot?
1: So they, uh, the chuckle caps are carrying spears as well. Um, it's not immediately clear uh, whether they're using them as, as javelins, whether they're capable of throwing the spears as well. Um, or whether they're handheld combat spears. Um, but those are the kind of weapons of the Chakulcapsa. Um, whether they're also used uh, in their military role or whether they're using military equipment, um, which is, for example, lighter, more portable bows, uh, sometimes made of bamboo, which uh, the regular soldiers in the Korean army are using, whether they're using those in a military context, uh, it is currently unknown. Um, but it is, it's very, very interesting that they are equipped slightly differently to the other Korean soldiers to reflect their specific role.
0: Yeah. And how about uniforms? Did they have any distinctive garb, whether for, you know, just sort of um, uh, ceremonial purposes or or functional purposes?
1: Not as, as far as we're aware. And again, this is something that uh, the use of these records to uncover information about the Chatton capture is, is relatively Uh, new endeavor. Um, We do have images of later period Korean hunters, uh, and I think what's maybe remarkable about those images is the fact that they're wearing clothes which are are essentially very ordinary. They're very similar to um, ordinary people. Now, of course, it becomes much harder in the the later half of the period we're talking about, say into uh, the 19th century, it becomes much much harder to distinguish between the use of Chuckle Kapser, this uh, royal fighting force, and professional tiger hunter, um, and essentially what might be considered private tiger hunters, um, and that's because uh, partially the uh, the price of tiger pelts has hugely increased. There's still a large bounty system in place, um, and therefore there are are more incentives for for ordinary private individuals. Uh, to hunt tigers and obviously there are that's linked to the fact that there are less tigers themselves so I'd be cautious of drawing too many conclusions from that simply because with some of those uh, the kind of very early photographs that we have we're not entirely sure which group that refers
0: to yeah well and and that actually brings me to a question that I wanted to ask about what what would they do with the carcass and the pelt of this tiger the royal sanctioned chapukapsa hunters.
1: Well, they're supposed to hand the pelt over uh, to the royal court um, uh, for the king. So there, there does seem to be, I mean, you'll probably be familiar with the kind of widespread issue of the illegal wildlife trade in tiger parts uh, in the 20th and 21st century and how this has posed such a huge threat to tigers worldwide. Yeah. Um, well, at the time there was a sort of early form of the wildlife trade. Um, in tiger parts, specifically that these pelts were um, being used in diplomacy, Um they were being sent uh, to the emperor in China, um, uh, to the emperor in Japan, um, as, as a diplomatic tool. So certainly, uh, whenever anyone kills a tiger, and that would absolutely apply for the chackle capture, they would be supposed to hand over the, the pelt um, to the royal court. But we certainly know that by the 1700s uh, some of these pelts are are making their way uh, onto the commercial market Um, and that's because they're hugely valuable so uh, some estimates suggest that the pelt uh, from just a single tiger by this point of time by the 1700s was equal in value to the price of a house in seoul wow yeah so it's, it's a phenomenal amount of money that could be obtained from one of these helps. And therefore, you have a choice. Do you, um, do you submit to the World Court and maybe receive um, some sort of elevation status that might be associated with such a, a courageous feat, or do you potentially make a very large amount of money um, selling illegally?
0: Well, and that that sort of brings me to the question of, you know, how do you fence a tiger pelt when it's worth so much in this time period? You know, it's like the famous painting, you can steal it from the Louvre, but you can't really sell it to anybody.
1: Well, absolutely. And uh, uh, the, the kind of slight complication here is, is that um, if, of course, the, uh, the royal court is it's giving tiger pelts to, say, particularly favoured members of the nobility, or if it's a rewarding gift, uh, internally, as well as externally, for the state. Um, then, of course, uh, if you happen to have a tiger pelt, you would you would just hope that no one notices and uh, realizes <laughs> that you're not supposed to have one.
0: <laughs> yeah, my great great grandmother on, on my second cousin's side left it in her will. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, like yeah. <laughs> wow, oh, it's fascinating.
1: What's really interesting about the Chakra capsule, in my opinion at least, is uh, who is the Chakro Capsa, which is a is a kind of really interesting dimension to them, because that reflects something about the role itself. Um, and these are volunteers, after all, the majority of them. Uh, and it is considered quite an, an elite role within the Korean army, within the CAPSA, who are um, a kind of very large standing body of what we might refer to as men at arms. Um, and so you do get volunteers, but most of those applicants are for Seoul itself. Um, most of the provinces felt they they didn't have enough applicants. People were uh, considered this too dangerous a profession to go uh. into. Um, and in, in these uh, provinces, you either um, attempted to get volunteers from regular soldiers, um, lower ranked civil servants, um, sometimes even peasants or slaves. Um, and if you don't get any volunteers, essentially, it was a case of picking larger men um, on the theory that they would be strong enough to handle these kind of uh, high-powered and quite heavy crossbows and bows that the chapel were re- required to use.
0: Well, and they almost would have had to draft at that point, it sounds like, if you well, don't have the the... Yeah. the the labor power and, and the tigers are, are a bit more active than, than the local populace is inclined to be happy with, what else do you do? Absolutely.
1: Um, I mean, uh, for the individuals who are volunteering, and, and as I say, this seems to most heavily be in the sole area itself. Of course, it's, it's a remarkably rare opportunity within a, a fairly strict social hierarchy at the time, uh, opportunity in terms of social mobility now this is one of the few regiments that's open to individuals across a range of social classes, statuses um, and the opportunity to not only be a member of the Chacocapsa but also potentially to be promoted within it is actually really unusual Um, and because that's partially because of the way that they're recruiting for the Chacocapsa this idea that when you do have enough volunteers that you're looking for uh, strength and you're looking for bravery um you're recruiting on merit and that's that's actually incredibly unusual uh, for the korean army at the time and and indeed it was very unusual um, for European armies at the time as well
0: and when you talk about the social mobility um, could you just explain to me how that works within a volunteer corps that sounds as if they they were not getting paid very much, if at all, for this work?
1: Like this would have been considered a a relatively uh, prestigious role, I think it's fair to say. Um, Particularly if you're on the lower end of the social spectrum, it is a, um, it's considered on the lower end of the civil servants, but it is considered the equivalent of of being a civil servant. And that was prestigious at the time. It still is in uh, modern day South Korea. Um, But it's associated with the fact that um, individuals who performed particularly well could be promoted, could be rewarded. Um, And that's both at the recruitment stage uh, and it's also at the stage of operation as well. Um, So just to give an example, in terms of recruitment, um, one of the activities was to take the recruits tiger hunting. Um, and those who attack the tiger first or manage to individually um, catch or kill the most tigers, um, they are the ones that become the Chacocapsa. Um, similarly, uh, when you are Chacocapsa, the the top-ranked, uh, we seem to think it was the top-ranked three individuals, um, and those individuals were the ones that could be promoted. Um, and, of course, military promotion at the time for those who um maybe didn't have as as much social status as uh was, was very unusual
0: and what was one promoted to what were was one expected to remain in the chapu kapsa in the the hands-on hunting of the tigers or did you you know essentially um earn the right to not be in harm's way so directly
1: there isn't a huge amount of information about or at least certainly that we can find from the records as to what happens, to the Chaco captors say, when they come to retire. Um, the Korean system at the time might have been very different to its uh, European counterparts or even its counterparts in East Asia. Um, and that's something that I'd be really interested to get into, but I certainly couldn't make any firm conclusions on that at this stage.
0: Well, what kind of alternative work Gig would somebody who was lucky enough to have an opportunity to be recruited into the into the Chapukapsa and and actually make it by performing well in a recruitment hunt. I mean what 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 would have their alternative been?
1: Well it, it depends really where they are in the social hierarchy and um the Joseon dynasty is is really interesting that um they certainly wouldn't have been a scholar. They wouldn't have been uh, anything that involved the kind of scholarly arts. Because those were pursuits that the nobility fulfilled. It, this is okay. very different to maybe their European counterparts in, in this way. Um, so instead, you're looking at a much more um, practical profession. Um, whether that was actually that you would be looking to, to enter a, a different arm of the military, um, albeit one that was not considered an elite, or whether it was that you either had a profession, at Trade, uh, or uh, were uh, working on the land, either as a, as a farmer or, obviously, uh, in the coastal areas um, to do uh, with the sea and fishing. Um, so it, it really depends at what what stage of the social hierarchy you were, as to as to what jobs were available to you at the time.
0: Josh, could you kind of walk us through a typical tiger hunting expedition? You know. How would it be organized? How long might it take? Would it involve a lot of travel? That sort of thing.
1: In that record that I mentioned earlier in 1754, um, when uh, tiger Hun- uh, Horhan is widespread across the peninsula and the magistrates are petitioning uh, the royal court uh, for tiger hunters to be sent out. The tiger hunters were um, successfully employed uh, in one of the northern provinces in what is now North Korea, uh, up along the border with China. Um, It's not uh, immediately clear um, how they're operating. We know that later period hunters were using dogs as bait uh, to draw tigers in. Um, We also know that uh, worldwide, uh, in the hunting of big cats, um, the use of baited carcasses uh, have been used we don't yet currently have any evidence for the use of basic carcasses for the chapel cancer. um but it's it's likely that that w- well would have been used um but they're being sent across the peninsula and um as i say this is an in- incredibly mountainous area where travel is extremely difficult indeed there are even roads um Interestingly, down on the southeast coast of the peninsula, which is maybe not where you'd expect tigers to be, if you're looking at a map of the Korean peninsula, you'd expect them to be up in the north. But there were some roads down in this area which were considered too dangerous to travel by ordinary people because the risk of hohan death by tiger was too high. Um, Wow. So even on the roads, on the road networks. So even moving to some of these areas would have been considered potentially rather dangerous.
0: Right, and when you had mentioned earlier um, something about tigers coming out even before night fell,
1: yes, yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, I mean that in itself suggests that actually the density of tigers on the peninsula was relatively high, and so you can imagine that if uh, if tigers are, are coming out before dark and and entering um, villages and towns, um, that there would have been quite a lot of, of fear that's associated with that, and that particular record very much does make that clear. Uh, and, and Seoul was a, a major metropolitan area at the time. Um, I mean, it, it's probably worth me explaining there that when we're thinking about the Chackle Capsa, um, what maybe actually is a, is a better way of thinking about them is maybe not just specifically tiger hunters, but tiger and leopard hunters. Because the two big cats share the same name in the historical usage. Of Korean, harangi, refers to both species. Now most of the records seem to refer to tigers and obviously you can uncover that to an extent for example if a description is made or for example you could uh, refer to the behavior. That's why for example we we might be able to conclude that that uh, tiger in Khombokon in Seoul was in fact a leopard because we know that urban leopards do occur and they occur today uh, mumbai for example uh, and nairobi um but you can use that sort of information to uncover whether these are tigers or leopards but they are they are hunting both species
0: did they work individually or was this generally more of a group thing even even though they were using weaponry that operated from a distance
1: well, th- that's one of the things about operating as a military corey it, it would have been a, an organized military group activity. This is what differs from um, individual uh, kind of private uh, tiger hunters later in the period when there's the growth in that sort of operation. Um, it would have been working t- together very much so.
0: And did they have different roles within the tiger hunt? Were there classes of hunters within this group?
1: Uh, unfortunately, we, we simply don't know that at the moment. Um, You can imagine that there probably would be and that individuals would fulfill different roles. But at at this stage, we simply don't know uh, enough information about their individual operation to say that with any certainty.
0: This is one of those cases where it's an activity that was critically important in terms of sort of national safety. We can just call it that in broad brushstrokes, but also clearly it concerns this creature that was of really deep cultural symbolic significance to the people as well and yet you know this activity isn't particularly well documented right as so many are not in history i mean that's the real problem of of doing history sometimes it's just they didn't think to write down all that convenient information we'd love to be able to just find in the modern day when we look back on it
1: i mean lots of the information that that we do have interesting about them more relates to kind of like the broader uh, uh, role that they, they could have played. And that was information that um, writers at the time uh, f- felt maybe that it, it was important to write down um, for whatever reason that was. So um, a very interesting side note, for example, is that uh, when there was a drought, um and uh, the local populace uh, was uh, desperate for, for there to be rain one method that was believed to work was to place the head of a tiger um in a a pond uh, and also a waterfall which is um in modern day Kaesong, which is just over the border into north korea both of which were believed to be home to a dragon and it was believed that if you oh. place the head of the tiger in this pond or this waterfall um that that would lead to rain um, so we've got plenty of like very interesting anecdotes like that about uh what kind of additional roles they could perform but as you say there's actually a relative lack of information about sort of the day-by-day uh, operation in the in the same way that you might expect for for other p- parts of the world and, and other time
0: periods Oh, no, that's interesting. Well, with that, let's turn the discussion a bit to how the practice of tiger hunting in Korea, you know, kind of faded away. You know, when and how did that really happen?
1: So tigers are in declining in Korea and the later half of the Joseon dynasty, but they're they're potentially in decline for a number of different reasons, Like Obviously, there's the Chakul Kapsa, who's... um, are very much being employed to exterminate Orhan, this death by tiger. Whether that's actually to exterminate tiger populations is less clear, but obviously the the two will have a knock-on effect on each other. But you've also got an expansion of agriculture. The population has grown. And so uh, humans are moving into what was previously forested areas, prime tiger habitat. Um, And a a combination of these factors, as well as uh, the kind of massively increased price of the tiger skins and the development of a wildlife trade, not only uh, internally, but also um, over the border into northern China, um, with some of the tribes that lived in northeast China at the time, meant that the tiger population had begun to decline quite heavily. Um, And There was also this increased use of bounties and and the growth of the private private tiger hunting and the setting of of traps for tigers and the combination of these different factors meant that the role of the Chapa Capsa therefore declines, they're they're less important and obviously by the time that um, you enter the 20th century at the end of the Joseon dynasty um, and uh, you enter the colonial period in Korea's history, tiger hunting and the attempted, and by this point it is very much the attempted extermination of tigers, then is begun to be taken over by the colonial Japanese administration. And there is very much a very heavy push towards extermination. So what you see is a decline um, in the role and and prominence of Chakal Capsa. Um, And and that's a really interesting part of the story as well, um, because obviously, We've talked about uh, the important kind of cultural significance of tiger, um, where the tiger had come to represent the Korean people and the extent of peninsula itself. So obviously, dominance and extermination of the tiger by the colonial regime at the time obviously carried a far greater geopolitical significance. Right. Yeah, it was not lost on either the administration or um, the uh, media that were reflecting on this back in Tokyo. Um, And that's a a really interesting part of the story. It's a a narrative that you see initially in the Imjin Wars between Korea and Japan where you get a lot of artwork of a particularly uh, prominent samurai general at the time hunting tigers in Korea. And that sort of imagery re-emerges at the start of the colonial period. Um, And it is heavily invoked following the Japanese annexation of Korea. Um, and in turn you get korean independence insurgents who begin drawing zoomorphic maps of korea whereby uh, the korean peninsula is replaced by a crouching tiger um, if any of your listeners haven't seen one of these before they zoomorphic maps are really quite fun it's, it's basically where you replace the outline of a country with an animal um, that maybe represents a sort of characteristic that you you want to suggest the country has um, whether that's to to praise certain countries or to uh show others uh, as maybe timid or fearful and in the case of these independence insurgents they were drawing uh, the peninsula as, as a tiger um to show the spirit of of uh, korean resistance um to the colonial regime
0: yeah and you know what i wonder is how do modern South Koreans view this tiger hunt as it was pursued by their own elite corps the Chapukapsa you know as opposed to some of these later representations i mean it's it's uh, perhaps quite uh, quite a specific question but i just wonder if there is a sense of national pride even today among Koreans for what their own people did in terms of hunting tigers
1: well, it has, has kind of been the recurring theme here. There is this kind of strong juxtaposition, isn't it? And what's certainly been the case is that although Chaka Patsa are not very well known in Korea necessarily, certainly they've begun to feature more and more heavily in modern Korean dramas and films and novels. And in fact, actually uh, Netflix has just produced their first ever Korean drama. Uh, and one of the central characters is portrayed uh, as Chakul slightly, Really? Oh, yeah, tell us it, about
0: it, that.
1: Well, it's set slightly earlier time period wise than we're talking, but that's interesting as well, because actually the very first instance that we know of a Chakul Kapsa, um, 1416, I believe, is actually an incident where two individuals are impersonating them. So it's clearly... Uh, of some uh, cultural status and significance, and and therefore these individuals are are claiming to be them. Um, they're subsequently punished afterwards for for impersonating this role, um, but that suggests that the role actually is older even than we know of it existing. And as I say, in this particular Netflix documentary, oh, uh, drama, um, which is based on an, on an earlier time period. One of the characters is, a, is Chackle Capsa. Um, and again, it's, it's very much drawing on those themes of bravery, um, uh, proficiency uh, with their weaponry. Um, those are kind of the, the major uh, themes that are portrayed for Chackle Cupser today.
0: What protections are in place for these animals today? in Korea and in the broader area? I know that we've talked uh, in a preliminary conversation about how the intersection of all of these highly complex regimes in the Eastern world really impacts conservation in the modern day.
1: So uh, I, uh, the Amur tiger was extirpated, that is lost from South Korea in the 1920s. So um, this kind of dramatically reduced tiger population, Which then underwent quite heavy efforts by both the colonial regime to exterminate it, but also uh, private hunters who, in this point of time, that's the early 20th century, seemed to be attempting to emulate the big game hunters from Europe and uh, America going to Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that had heavily depleted the tiger population And and it goes extinct in the early 1920s in what is now South Korea the armored leopard remarkably persists until 1970. So these two species which historically share the same name, mani- one of them manages to survive like through the second world war, through Korean independence and through the Korean war, albeit in an extremely small relic population. Now a really interesting question is whether both species still exist in North Korea. That is obviously unknown, it's impossible right. for scientists to right. go and do direct right. surveys. <laughs> so as a result the the only firm conclusions that we can draw not knowing the status in north korea is that um the overall range of the armor tiger has been heavily restricted such that um early in this century uh, they were reduced to only areas of the russian far east and that was their last remaining stronghold and strict protections are in place um but poaching uh, for the illegal wildlife trade remains a major threat there. Just recently, um, there was the news that uh, poachers had killed two armored tigers and that they'd been arrested by Russian authorities. Now, the population was all but wiped out in China. Um, but very encouragingly, some recent research has begun to show that individuals are recolonizing Northeast China. Um, and so potentially the Armor tiger uh, is, is back in China. But potentially, it could, uh, even if it hasn't managed to persist in North Korea, there is obviously a chance that individuals will cross the border uh, and that Korea will once more have tigers.
0: Yeah. What's your thought about that? You know, are South Koreans ready to reintroduce this incredibly meaningful species to their country?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question, because the two are slightly different things of course. It's one thing uh, North Korea having tigers um, and uh, being comfortable with that. It's quite another being prepared to live with with tigers uh, yourself. Um, And as a result, this isn't something I, I probably can't comment on yet, simply because I don't know and I don't think anyone knows, but that's actually what some of what my PhD is going to attempt to shed some further light on. Everyone thinks not certainly in terms of the reintroduction of of tigers to south korea but even if that is the case there is a chance that south korea is ready to live with other large carnivores that might be the armor leopard it's probably more likely to be the moon bear which is another one of the large carnivores for this megafauna region and a very small population has managed to survive in the far south of the korean peninsula and of course as we've just mentioned with this other interesting question of maybe North Korea has some armor tigers left. And if not, there might come a point in time in the near future when a few individuals cross the border from either Russia or China into North Korea.
0: Yeah, they they don't know about borders, right? So it seems entirely feasible that could happen. Yeah, no, it's it's very, very (laughs) much
1: feasible. Um, But of course, in the event of reunification, that would mean that the tiger has once again returned to a united Korea. And I think that would uh, likely excite a lot of Koreans. Um, The question of whether if the tiger returned to South Korea or the area which is now South Korea, people would feel quite so positive about it. Well, that's a really interesting question and one I very much hope to find out.
0: Josh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today to share with us the really uh, surprisingly complex history of tiger hunting in Korea. And, you know, really, it's clearly lasting geopolitical as well as cultural significance for the entire region and, and really for the world in conservation terms.
1: It was a a pleasure to be here, and it's a really interesting subject that um, we're continuing to learn more about all the time. So uh, uh, it it was an absolute delight uh, to join you.
0: In ancient Korea, the tiger was a potent symbol of fear and an omnipresent reminder of the beautiful danger of the natural world. When tiger hunting emerged in the Korean court as a specialized vocation, It launched a culling process that only accelerated under Japanese colonial rule, which styled itself after English colonialists in Africa. Tiger pelt prices rose ever higher, exacerbating habitat changes to seal the Elmer tiger's fate in Korea. It's fascinating to consider how a people can be so enchanted by a living creature, and yet willing to destroy it for the sake of profit. I mean, just looking at Korean art, literature, and popular culture, tigers are everywhere. While this reverence for the animal as symbol endured, regard for the animal itself and its place in local and global ecosystems did not. It's that old human trope of wildly worshipping something without truly valuing it. As the planet's top dog species, it's our human responsibility to critically examine our relationships with the natural world and the rest of its creatures. Being more conscious of how we do business with nature, hopefully we can ensure that future generations will get to see more than just symbols of magnificent animals such as the Amur Tiger. Hopefully, they'll get to experience the real thing.
1: Hey there, awesome human! You can follow today's guest, Josh Powell, on Instagram at Powell underscore official. You can also find him on Facebook, too. Just look for the words National Geographic Explorer on his profile. No big deal. As always, we're on social media at Working OT Series with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Until next week thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at WorkingOTSeries. Thanks for listening and remember to like and subscribe.